Welcome to the Teaching Classroom 21, a podcast by the Ever Learner. I'm James, your host. Join me and my guests every week as we discuss, debate, and explore the features of a world-class classroom in the 21st century. Welcome to the Teacher in Classroom 21 podcast. I'm your host, James Sims, and joining me in person today in deepest Greenwich is Bridget Clay. Bridget is co-author of the outstanding book, Unleashing Great Teaching, The Secrets to the Most Effective Teacher Development, head of programme at the organisation Teach First, advocate for the MTPT project, more of which later on, and thoroughly lovely person. Bridget, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So Bridget, my first question, oddly for a podcast, is actually of a practical doing nature. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, here we go. Would you sign my copy of Unleashing for me? Absolutely. When I, when I met David, when I met David, what would it be now, three weeks ago now, I guess? Yeah. I forgot to ask him. So I'm going to use this as an excuse to meet David again. To get, yeah, absolutely. And if, if you're not too offended while we're on the process, I'm also going to take a photo of you doing it, and then I can, yeah. sh- I can share that too. Definitely. So, that, it's actually quite a long time since I've recently asked for a book to be signed. I, th- I'm I feel t- very honoured. I think the last time it was in a book festival, and I can't remember the name, but it's in a very famous small town on the border with Wales, in oh. England and Wales. I don't remember the name of the town now. I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I've got the same problem. But and before then, it would be the Cheltenham Literary Festival, which, is, which was back probably 10, 15 years ago. So, on this theme with the book then, Bridget, has life changed as an author for you? Yes, actually, I think um, you probably find all the time when we're having to uh, do a talk, write something down, you're forced to really articulate your thinking that you might have thought, it might have assumed you were clear on, and then when you have to actually put pen to paper, it really kind of forces the mind. And I think we had so many. We went into it very naively. We thought we could string together the ideas that we had and the work that we were doing, and it would be fairly straightforward. But actually, there was a lot of working out, really, what's the root of what we're trying to say here. And so we were in this bubble of really just the two of us, um, and then also just the stress of trying to get the thing done. And, and now that it's real and it exists and other people can read it, um, I do think that's, that's really, that is a different thing. Um, I'm not being stopped in the street yet or anything, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think there is a shift there. And when someone, when someone first, when someone either approaches you or you speak to, or a bit like me today has the book with them, what what's the initial? Because you mentioned the word feeling there. What's the initial feeling? Is it? Do you have that super confident the book's great feeling, or is it still? Have they found any flaws in it? To be honest, it's definitely the latter. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, and it's not. I mean, it's partly just a sort of. Um, uh, fearful anxiety thing but I think also I am interested which are the bits that people might disagree with or find more challenging because there's a level of engagement there if you disagree with it so I think part of me is always wondering when that point's going to come and which which bit 
It is. That's always going to be challenging, isn't it? But I think you're right. I think there's, I think if everyone agreed with every word, probably it wouldn't be challenging enough. And and I I hope we're saying something, or saying something in a slightly different way, or we're saying something new and different. Um, so, I yeah. If I think if we don't ever hear anything, maybe we're just repeating what everybody already knew, which would be. And I think the, the, the area where you looked at, for example, um, the different models, you, you, looked at, uh, you looked at other people's work, you looked mm-hmm. at Spirals of Inquiry, um, you looked at uh, Dr. Matt O'Leary's work, I think, or at least the work that he, he's written about in, in relation to lesson study, where I think you were very fair in your analysis and evaluation of those models, but ultimately it was critical. How did you feel about that? Yeah, I think, so I think we, we were trying to set out that professional learning is really difficult and whilst we um, hope we're giving a really practical guide we're also trying to be really honest about um, so it's D- David and I writing this we're, we're trying to be really honest about the limitations of approaches and there is no one approach that gets it absolutely get captures absolutely everything and also even if there were it would need to be contextualized and adapted so i think what we're really trying to do is set out a stool of here are approaches here are the pros and cons um and the the challenges and the limitations which you can then bear in mind in your context and i think that then allows people to really consider what will work for for me and my school my pupils our current um cultural journey where we're at um, and get a sense of of what you might want to build on over time um, rather than setting a model which you know all of them are we haven't put anything in there that we wildly disagree with they're all great models it's just then about how you adapt and apply them um, and take those limitations into account I think. So thinking of the the climate as it is now the system as it is now the pressures as they are now why is unleashing important at this moment from your perspective? So, so what springs to mind actually? So, uh, obviously, England at the moment, funding reduction, financial pressures in school is a is a, a huge challenge. That combined with um, uh, challenges around recruiting and retaining teachers, I think what. What the assumption is, which I don't disagree with, professional learning is absolutely really great for teacher retention, teacher recruitment, and that's a really important strand. However, in tally with that is its importance in unleashing great teaching for our students. And I think we risk losing that if we get hung up on thinking about it solely for teachers. It absolutely is about um, supporting teachers and teachers having enjoyment and thriving in their work but it's also for our students and when things are really push comes to shove we're there for our students and we need to have this at the heart of what we do for them um, and I think it is a, I think it's a challenge in our current climate because there are many competing pressures and great professional learning requires time which is always a challenge in schools particularly with reducing funding so this leads us to talk about impact that concept of the outer edge I know it's something you feel very strongly about Mm -hmm. CPD I don't want to put words into your mouth but it seems to me that CPD from your perspective from David's perspective needs to be or must be for impact to that outer edge how would you describe that 
that concept to somebody? So I think the the so I think schools are complicated places. The, the vital role of a school is to in, in, uh, to support children to succeed, and the vital role for the school, the heart of the school, is the students and pupils within it. Um, and everything needs to have that starting point in mind. That doesn't mean that, of course, you need indirect um, systems, procedures, opportunities. You need great, great leadership development. But ultimately, the aim should be rooting back to okay. What is the need that we need for our students? That's our starting point. How is this helping us to, to benefit them? And if it isn't, why are we doing it? And I think, I think there needs to be a, a shift in thinking about professional learning. It, it, yeah, it, we're starting with the students and we're doing this for our students. And it's great that it's great for our teachers as well, but that's not the only reason. Um, and in terms of impacts, I think having that clear, how that clear kind of process of how this is ultimately benefiting the school really helps us to focus what is it that we're really looking for and it's not always going to be directly focused on students but if we're thinking um, you know we need to make efficiencies around the um, uh, I don't know something around teacher workload with a view to be best supporting our students or if we need to be looking at building our middle leadership capacity with a view to supporting that subject area for our students. I think it just really helps focus what are we doing and why and then how will we know whether we've, we've met that. And I think it's one of the real big takeaways from the book for me was, it was quite early in the book, it, it's, that, it's that very simple image of the concentric circle in the middle of, that, of those circles you have, I think how you referred to it was the inner core, the systems, the values even, the protocols, but those systems should always be, I think, outward facing. They've got to face to the out, most outside circle, which is effectively the student experience as they're attracted to the school. Exactly. They serve the edge, they serve the students and they serve the impact we're looking for in the classroom. They are important, but they're important in that they serve rather than the other way around. I, I think I think that's great. So picking up on that point of culture then. So if if we if we're to accept that one of the great challenges in any institution is to get the culture right. If a school leader feels that their CPD culture right now is not as they want it to be, or not right, or I don't know what's the worst thing, not or not optimised. Yeah. What are the first, second, and third steps that colleague might consider taking? Great question. So, I think I think the first the first step they've already done. Actually, I think we talk about culture a lot, and sometimes we have a binary kind of this is a great culture or this isn't a great culture and actually you are always building and developing it and you're moving towards something and I think being realistic about actually we are not here yet therefore we won't leap into you know if within our culture we don't have a history of even peer observing we're not super open to sharing we're not actually we don't have lots of communication within our staff trying to leap into um, a really extensive collaborative inquiry model which should be really powerful is going is going to be undermined by your culture and actually being realistic about okay we need to get these building blocks in place and I think the key thing for an individual um, is how you talk about it and how you model it 
So being really consistent in doing what you say you're going to do and actually modelling that openness, modelling your own learning, inviting people to come and look at your... your Learning is vulnerable and, and inviting people to come and you know, see your vulnerabilities as, as you develop is so powerful for then setting a culture for other people. It's one of the great challenges within this mix then. Is it therefore that the people who are likely to be leading this shift in culture are the people who are spending least time in the classroom? Is, 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 that, is there something in that? I think that's potentially true, yes. I think, and I suppose then, so it is easy as a leader to see, to be kind of identifying and, you know, you're in the classroom less and you're, you're looking, at, looking out in, into the school and I think that's really where the, but the actual culture is what's happening on the ground. You, nobody ever sees beyond their own, you know, sort of sphere as they're walking around the school. And I think that's really where the starting point needs to be actually really listening, you know, whether that's focus groups, whether that's surveys, really unpicking what is, what is the culture, how is the culture perceived, because I might be perceiving it wrong. And then how can I feed into it, but how can I bring other people with me? How can I include other people? How can I bring, build a team that's working on this? You know, starting with the enthusiasts, um, growing from there, rather than trying to say, okay, we're all going to do this new thing, blanket roll it out. That's probably not going to, to land immediately. Well, you've said something really interesting there, which is actually, it's connecting. I, I don't want to talk about it here because it's, a, it's sort of out of context, but we, we, let's just call it a project we're working on. Mm-hmm. And it is about, it, it's based around C, in CPD, in, in, it, potentially in schools. And we have a part of that experience, which is called your 10 true fans. Mm. And it, it's actually taken from a, a business model, which refers to the 1,000 true fans, which is basically what it takes to get a business off the ground. Yeah. But to get a really successful project off the ground, we are effectively mirroring that concept that in order for it to really bite and take hold, 10 true fans, whether they be uh, senior colleagues and middle leaders, whether they be classroom teachers, whether they be um, senior students, is absolutely essential to get your project inertia to where it needs to be. Yeah, I think there's something really, really in that and getting the... The core, yeah, the core people, but but getting diversity in that as well, because the risk is that you you're always looking to the same people, and you surround yourself by people who surround yourself with people who agree with you and reinforce, and actually you can miss the wider picture. Um, but there is something about yeah that kind of core component, and it brings that back to that that point you made before about unleashing, which is you actually need to find that critic. Because there, there may be some bluster and mm. frustration in there, but there might be some nugget of beauty that they might actually hold. And we all have, um, we all have these biases that we'll, we all have our blind spots. Just by being humans, we've got them, and we need our, we need that challenge and disruption to see it. Yeah. Hmm. You, you triggered some ideas in me, Bridget. <laughs> I wasn't expected to go in that direction. It's really interesting. Now I have to switch my mind back. So. Um, I've heard I've heard you both talk and write and, and read your writing about CPD flexibility. For someone picking up this podcast today and listening, what what is CPD flexibility and, and why is it so important in your opinion? So, I think 
I think we lump professional learning. We have one term, whether it's we, we all have a different term, but we all use one term. <laughs> so you might call it CPDL or CPD or PD, but we kind of group all learning together, and actually that's just not a true picture. You know. I'm learning in this conversation, I go to a conference, I get loads of ideas, that's very different to when I'm really rooted in a, in a classroom, working on something over time, developing it, actually experimenting and embedding in it. So I think, I think it's really important to be clear on what, 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 the, what kind of type of impact we're looking for and what type of CPD fits into that. Um, but similarly, to, and, it, and it links to the culture about how we can celebrate all of those types of learning and and recognize them and, and and acknowledge them and I think to historically CBD meant the time when you all came together it was literally it was CBD time it wasn't the learning that you might do on Twitter where you trigger an idea and then the learning that you take into your classroom and I think we need to have a language for all of those different parts and we need to to celebrate the, the contribution they all make to our, to our practice. So there's a real openness to that, that learning can literally come from, from anywhere. And I, it brings me again back to the, uh, just one word you, you, made, uh, you used earlier, which was listening. Mm. How do you see listening to the students in, in this context? So it links to the biases again as well. So I think... I mean, if you ask any teacher if there's one thing you could change in your classroom or you could address in this lesson, what would it be? They'll undoubtedly have an answer. But I think there's also that that then checking the assumptions that will be part of that answer. And, and stu- student input and listening to the students really needs to be a part of that. And that might be literally talking to them. But it's also having an objective pair of eyes, you know, in your classroom, looking not at you but at the students, and actually really checking when you're, if you're in a room of thirty people, the number of interactions that will be happening in that room, you cannot possibly, as one individual, pick up on. And actually, I think there's something at, at every level about che- challenging your own assumptions and really verifying and diagnosing what is the what's the area that I want to focus on here. What you know, it could be, whether that's a need or whether that's something that to, to be celebrated and grown, um, and I think it's really important to make sure that that's that's at, at the student level and it's driving that as well. I find that really fascinating because, as you said there, we could ask Bridget or James or Teacher A B through to whatever. We could ask them what what the challenge is in the classroom, but unless that interpretation is qualified and and. and and clarified, there's at least a substantial chance that we may misdirect our time, our resources, and our attention. Mm. And again, that's a strong feature of your writing. Would you would you describe that as a fair summary, Bridget? Or how would you, how would you word that? Yeah, I think. Yeah, we talk about disruption as well because we we use the word support and challenge. We use the word challenge, although now I'm saying it out loud. Shouldn't I don't you know it should be within a, a safe culture of innovation and learning and it, it shouldn't feel confronting um, but then we need to develop an openness to to kind of yeah disrupting our assumptions and awareness of our assumptions own that we will all have our own biases and assumptions and we need to have either you know expert input 
and, and forms of expertise that can that can challenge our assumptions and help us grow and develop. So that external, well, I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be external, but that expertise is clearly a mm. significant part of this this model. I, I remember reading uh, my interpretation of the first 50 pages of Unleashing Today, and I missed that part out. I didn't incorporate the idea of expertise. How, how would you summarise that for us? What's the role of expertise in improving this culture, structure, behaviour around professional learning? So I think it has... I think it has multiple roles and I think if we think about where we are at the moment and again because of potentially reduced budgets um, and I think sometimes there's a, a, a closing of doors and, a, and a, a reluctance to engage with expertise but actually it plays a really important role at almost every stage you know the expert input can really help you identify the area that you're focusing on can disrupt and bring in new strategies um, it, they can help you you know, coaching or working with you to embed, but I think the 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 key bit is just making sure that we're all drawing on the ideas that are most likely to work. That you know, working with children in a way, everything's important and urgent because they really matter, and none of us can really afford to be trying out strategies that aren't aren't the ones that are most likely to work. Not every strategy will work everywhere, but we want to have a really good starting point. And being able to draw on other people's expertise and other people's learning is a really um, is a really powerful part of that, I think. To what extent, Bridget, is or, or was the the quality of the professional teacher learning that you experienced in line with what you're advocating? I think about this quite a lot. So I had access to a lot of CPD um, and there were a lot of people working very hard on it and there was a lot of, actually I think I had access to quite a lot of expert input. What I didn't do and the link that I don't think I was making was really linking it to my practice in the day to day. I think I was improving my knowledge and my thinking and when I had the time, which one really does, I would think about it in my classroom. I might try out an idea, but I wasn't trying to change what I was doing. I wasn't trying to change the habit that is, you know, you're in a classroom four or five hours a day. It, a lot of that is just an automatic, you're on, you're on, uh, not very hard work. There's an element of autopilot familiarity and to disrupt and change that, you need to be really focused. And I don't think those two things, my practice and my learning, weren't actually speaking to one another as much as they should have done, I think. I think there's a lot of us yeah. feel similarly. <laughs> but what I find interesting about what you just said was you put the ownership of that on yourself. Yeah. So it's like a, a form of extreme accountability. Because I could say to you, I wasn't there obviously for the, for the training experiences, but I could say to you, Bridget, it wasn't done well enough for you. Yeah. What was the balance in your mind? I mean, I definitely, I think, I think, I think it was, I think the culture and the framing of it wasn't right, because I don't think any of us were making that link. And I think what, what we're calling for in the book is empowering and enabling teachers to be evaluative and providing them the structure and the resources for responsive professional learning. Um, but also communicating and prioritising and resourcing that because actually 
nobody. We, we've all gone and learned amazing things and gone away with the best of intentions and had no organisational support or resource or time to do what we, what we intended to do. And that's not, that's not an individual issue, that's a kind of cultural, structural issue, I think, in the sector of actually not maximising those opportunities that we've got. Hmm. You've brought me back to something again. I wasn't <laughs> expecting to do it. It's actually one of the great beauties of doing these podcasts, Meet Bridges. is I have the opportunity to sit down in person often like we are today or sometimes online. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I get to listen to really considered people sharing their ideas and their thoughts. And every time it happens, there's moments that sort of slap me. I think that's like whatever, you know. Yeah. And what you've brought me to there is one... I, it's actually the first time I've ever ever uh, verbalised this publicly, but one of the things that I think, or, or let, let me just put a, a picture around it, in, in, in the professional learning I experienced as a teacher, I very, very frequently took away from days and conferences and experiences the idea of notes, PowerPoint slides and ideas, which were often very good. Mm. But I very, very, very rarely, if ever, and I think it never, have to just think that through but I think it's never I never took away an implemented project at the end of cycle one and that's something that I, th- I this is just my personal sort of reverse roles here a yeah. little bit but <laughs> this, this is just my personal uh, sort of pattern of flow of thought at the moment that professional learning may be better defined by the the project out if project's the right word the project output that it actually achieves yeah and I think one of the distinctions that um, David and I make in the book is between a programme of learning and an activity that falls within that and I think in a contained session day you know activity um you're not going to be able to. You're not going to have done the embedding and the um, the the implementation because you need the time to go and experiment and to re- adapt it and to refine and and actually just make it part of your day to day. But I think there is something about in in that session in that activity making the links making the next steps so that you can do that and you've made that decision you've planned out when it's going to happen um rather than yeah people people and i include myself always want to take things away because they're like one day this is going to be really great and i want to capture it um and then we've got that box of of shame of guilt (laughs) that kind of builds up we've always had all of us have had the experience of having to clear that out at some point yeah and it's realizing just all those good intentions having to go in the recycling <laughs> yeah I, I remember I remember finding sets of uh, training notes that I'd had from my first year of teaching when I when I finished my last teaching role which was uh, 16 years from that first point and rather shamefully I'd never actually used those notes I don't think that's I, it's certainly not the case for everybody in all situations, but I don't think that's uncommon as an experience. No, and I I know that I still I mean I I'm a hoarder in my life generally, perhaps, but um, yeah, the amount of um, resources that that I, I still have or things that I've kept and you know from training from lessons that yeah 
Yeah. <laughs> Bridget, you describe yourself as an advocate for the MTPT project. Mm. Tell us about that. So, and I always find that I notice you're saying the name very slowly and carefully. It's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, maternity teacher, paternity teacher yes. project. So, I came across this through um, a very good friend of mine, Emma Shepherd, who is the founder of the project. Um, and she has two small children, and when she was pregnant with her, her eldest, who is my godson, um, we were having these conversations around how how parental leave, the assumptions attached to parenting and parental leave. And you know, I am not a parent, and as a as an area of society, I know that it's a bit of a minefield in terms of assumptions attached to it and sensitivities that that come with it. But her experience was, she is so. She really enjoys teaching. She's so interested and intellectually stimulated by teaching and teaching and learning and thinking about it. Um, and she just felt as though there was no avenue for her to continue that intellectual experience. Um, and uh, what she set up is a, is a project that's designed to inspire, empower and connect people who are, are are using that time in a variety of ways. And that might be, I mean, so she's, she takes her, her to, to um, conferences and she's, yeah, always up and down the tube with a, with a baby on her front <laughs> going to visit people. But it's, you know, it's, it's the thing, and often actually what she found was that lots of people were doing this anyway but weren't recognising and celebrating it. Which is one of the key themes for you. How do you word it? It's the... You're looking to recognise the unaccredited experiences that, that both um, mothers in maternity and fathers in paternity leave might experience. Exactly. And that's not to say that that's how everybody wants to spend their time, of course. Of course. But I think... And, and I should also, I, I'm also clear that if you're not in the classroom, you're not engaging in the, the direct change. You, you, know, you can't really embed things into your practice when you're, when you're on leave. But what you can do is have the space... To really gain lots of expertise, um, to learn new skills. You know, people have completed masters. Completed, people have done kind of coaching training. People have actually really reviewed their schemes of work. Or really, Emma's an English teacher and always talks about the the um, text that she's able to engage in more fully because yeah. you never you never have as much mental space and capacity as you would like. Um, in the classroom in the busy day to day and being able to to maximize that um, is something that I know Emma has really enjoyed and it's really important that that is acknowledged and celebrated and it's not seen as on pause because our brains are never on on pause and actually that that thinking that um, she and, and many people involved in the project and I'm sure beyond have been able to do is something that we skip over as a as a society I think um, so yeah my role with the project has partly been um, going out for dinner with Emma and just being fascinated by the whole thing and really enjoying talking about it um, but also looking at how we uh, accredit and acknowledge and and partly articulate that learning and it links into that that um, those kind of layers of impact Okay, so you, you haven't been in the classroom, you haven't 
um, embedded things into your practice, but you have actually really, you know, potentially produced something that, that, that will support learning, like schemes of work or so on, or you've had an opportunity to really build your own um, deli you know, deliberative expertise that you can then take forward in planning or to develop a, a, um, as a, an individual in terms of your coaching or leadership or, or whatever that might be. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I think it's a really, really interesting project. So I want to read something to you. Yeah. This is a true statement. Uh, it's something I am personally um, aware of. I can't say where because it's traceable. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to read it to you exactly. And I'd just like to ask for your reaction from the MTPT perspective. So I've been privy to one case where a school, this is this year, a school told teachers that pay would be docked if they missed work due to a child's illness. How do you respond to that? Yeah. I think... So schools have a challenge in that... Um, so where I work now, we have so much flexibility, working from home, agile working, and by the nature of looking after... Uh, looking after and teaching and educating children face to face, they are less flexible institutions and it's a real struggle for them. However, you're, I mean, whatever you are as an organisation, you have staff and you have a responsibility to your colleagues and they are your most valuable asset. And in terms of the culture that you're setting, the environment that you're setting, and really that. Yeah, I, I find that really, really challenging. Um, as I say, I'm, I'm not a parent, and I also do not claim to know the the HR intricacies that that should, should 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 be explored in that particular example potentially. But but I think uh, yeah, uh, just from the reaction of we are all um, individuals, and actually there needs to be. There needs to be flexibility and an acknowledgement that 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 can can avoid a situation like that. I think your point on culture is a very interesting one, where something, a policy equivalent that one or equivalent to that, where that would lead the culture of an organisation, I think is yeah. is interesting uh, to reflect upon. I'm also going to, if you'll allow me to sort of play devil's advocate um, here, and actually. I'm going to deliberately get the wrong end of the stick about the MTPT project, which I've read quite a lot about. And yeah. I've actually, as, as a father of two and uh, and also someone who right now is experiencing agile, more flexible working, mm. I actually feel quite strongly about it, but I'm going to take this hyper-negative stance of you forgive me momentarily for it. What would you say to someone who told you parents on leave shouldn't be pressured into CPD and learning? I would completely agree with that. Mm. I think... You know, I, actually, as a as a country, the the laws and opportunities around um, parental leave are are great, and it's for people's choice about what that looks like. And I think, um, you know, looking after children is a job, and is uh, not that I've done it myself, but from as I understand, it, a very taxing one as well. Um, and there shouldn't be, that's exactly right. There shouldn't be pressure either way. However, there should be freedom of choice and there shouldn't be pressure not to engage in any professional capacity, which I think 
sometimes there is and people say it from a protective yeah. and well-meaning perspective as well but there's sort of a if that's not you know if you want to be engaging professionally in some way to have people trying to protect you and limiting you is not helpful it's almost like on, on that side of it on the protective I'm going to choose the, the maternal aspect mm. here because I think it's more prominent in that direction it's almost like a, a residue of a Victorian ethos of the delicate woman somehow that we have to protect that 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 potentially yeah. damage damageable lady in this challenging time. Yeah, and it, I mean the difference is it is so entrenched. Mm. And we look at you know, and we're on, we're not aware of it. it it's built. It, it's kind of conditioned into us, right? Yeah, and I remember saying to Emma. Um, I can't remember what the context was, but I was kind of like, oh, she was pregnant. I was like, but you know, you're growing a baby. You're doing, you know, it's basically like whatever you do today, you're doing something impressive. Which on some <laughs> level it's true, but in many levels was, you know, kind of patronising and, and limiting because obviously she, she was still teaching. She was still a professional. She was still wanting to, um, yeah, and it, it, it's, so, it's so ingrained in us. And I, I'm sure, I'm sure I'm, I, all of us are often saying things that don't resonate with one another. It's quite sensitive, but uh, um, it's re- it's a really complicated and deeply rooted challenge. I think. I had an interesting experience today because I've been reading about MTPT in in the last few days in preparation for today. Mm-hmm. And this morning, I forwarded the website link, which is uh, mtptproject.org.uk. I think that we got them. Mm-hmm. That, was a, that was a moment. I should have written that down. <laughs> um, but I forward the link on to um, a colleague who is imminently going on maternity leave, and I, 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 I suffix the email almost with a health warning apology, like I was doing something wrong. I was telling her, it was a maternal case rather than maternal case, um, I was almost felt like I was telling her that she, she had to do this, when in yeah. fact, it's what you said, it, it's about opening up opportunity and yeah. choice. And I think the inspire bit, you know, on there, there yeah. are many examples of, of what people have done. And, and I think it's, you know, you don't, until you've seen it, you don't necessarily, I think I think Emma was quite unusual in, and, and all credit to her for having this really ambitious idea when, when um, potentially other people around her didn't have to share her ideas. But actually, when you look at that, actually, I think there's a lot of, Inspiration, a lot of like, actually, this bit I could could manage, or I want to engage in this way, and I hadn't even thought about how you could do that. Or people who go, oh yeah, I did actually do that, and I didn't recognise it enough, and I sort of. We need to value it, and as you say, we we need to. I mean, where possible, we need to accredit that. Would would you take the accreditation side? Would it go to the level of reading something, for example? Is there potential there, or is that too difficult? So I think. I mean, I suppose it depends what... I think the, the purpose of the accreditation is to, is to outline what, what you have achieved and how you can take it forward. And I think as long as we're really specific about the, the level of impact that we're looking for, and then that is what should be valued. So actually, you know, it can be, a, a re, you know, raising your awareness... Of a, of, a, of, a, of a wider sector issue or of a particular area of the curriculum, that's great. That can be a starting point for what you then might continue when you're back in the classroom, and we should value that. It's not as intensive or impactful as 
um, potentially other activities or things that you might have done when you were in the classroom um, on some levels. But it's the starting point, it's the potential, and we should um, value and acknowledge that. Um, and also, I, I, as I say, I'm not a parent, but I can imagine that's quite a vulnerable time. And um, you, 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 you feel almost apologetic that you have, I, I you have to qualify I feel like I've said that. several times that I'm not pregnant. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a, a, a delicate area. I feel like I am tiptoeing around it. <laughs> it's one of those, do you feel it's one of those things you kind of have to have been through to advise on? Yes, I think possibly I, yeah. Oh, but I also think even if you've been through it, you can't make assumptions about anyone else's. So it's yeah. No, I, I've I've put my foot in that one a few times, <laughs> so I, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I think I think the content is great though because I, I'm really intrigued to learn more about this because I think I think that's a really interesting idea because it comes back to the unleashing point, doesn't it? Whatever you do, whether it's reading or making yourself aware of something, if that has an impact, such as. I think this may have been the case with Emma. I'm, I, I'm sure if I'm remembering correctly, I can now teach up to A level. Say, mm. then the impact is really, really clear. Mm. And actually, the activities that led to that impact, assuming they're high quality and relevant, it actually doesn't matter whether they're formal or informal. Mm. And I think well, so that example. So um, often, uh, let's say I'm a. Um, a, a biology teacher and I need to teach another area of science that isn't actually my subject expertise area often you don't have the time and capacity to do that initial knowledge building and you're right it needs to be the starting point of the knowledge building and then you when you're back in the classroom you're then developing that embedding it experimenting with it refining it Um, and I think yeah that 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 needs to be needs to be valued and I think it you know we started off by saying CPD needs to be rooted in in pupil impact and reading will on its own will not have pupil impact however it will link to activity that you can then do and and will ultimately benefit students and I just think that combined with the fact that we have this um retention and, and recruitment challenge we need to be to be thinking about how we um, celebrate and, and reward and look after our, our teaching staff, which are ultimately the, mo- the most valuable thing in your, in your school. I really like it. I, 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 the, there's numerous people I'm going to share this conversation with. This and mm. um, the, the first section we've discussed about about uh, professional learning, about the but these things are, are clearly very very relevant to a, a wide range of people. But the latter part where we've talked about maternity and paternity, I think they're very specifically relevant for certain people. And, mm. and I have numerous people in mind that I'm going to I'm going to share this section mm. with. Um, I have two questions that we like to ask all of our guests, although I forgot with David, in fact we went way too long when I spoke to David and I kind of, I didn't feel like I could use up any more of his time at the end of that conversation. But I'd actually like to take you back to uh, to your own schooling, or it could be your college experience, your university experience. Yeah. Who do you consider to have been a great teacher in your experience and why? Interesting. So as soon as you said that, somebody sprung to mind. So I uh, did a history degree and at school I had a uh, history teacher, Dr. Gallagher, who was extremely 
knowledgeable, extremely interesting, and really, I really enjoyed his lessons, and I also went on to do a lot of other study in history and, and really enjoyed and succeeded in it. Um, but he's also the person who used to stick in my mind when I then became a teacher, because I would never have taught in the way that he did. <laughs> Particularly at that stage, I think a lot of thinking around teaching practices has moved on and then, but back when I was teaching, and he used to say things like, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to be, um, I don't know, doing all these things, but really I just know this and you need to know it, so I'm gonna tell you about it. <laughs> and it was quite, quite, an interesting approach <laughs> and I used to think about it a lot when I was teaching because I thought this would never I would never do it this way I don't really know how it worked um, but yeah I think I think it really I think it really did work for me and there was a lot of, of expertise that he, he was sharing with us um, yeah but it's a funny one there yeah I, I was very I think I was very fortunate I can think of a number of, of teachers from from primary school all the way through university as well that um, that sort of stuck in my stuck in my mind and still make a difference. It's interesting. And now projecting forward, I'd like you to put Bridget five years, seven years. Let's say five years down the line. Would you share with us one thing in your life that you're thoroughly determined that you're going to be doing in the same way, and one thing that you're determined to change? Gosh. So, what am I determined to be doing in five years' time in the same way? I think, so I hadn't, or I hadn't really intended to, uh, when I was at university, I didn't, when I was at school, I definitely didn't want to be a teacher, because why would you be a teacher? We're all really rude about you. <laughs> um, and I sort of, during university, got more and more interested in it, became a teacher, and then have been in, in the education sector, um, but outside the classroom for five, six years now. Um, and it is an ever fascinating area of work to, to me. I just think it's, I think it's really complicated, but I think it's really, really important. And I'm very confident in five years' time that I will still be unpicking what is it that is really powerful, that, we, that, that enables really powerful things in the classroom. What is it that we need to be doing or learning or or and um, and how can we how can we keep keep chipping away at, at this at this really important function of education but also this really important challenge about the fact that we don't have we have inequality in our current system it's very strong in the on the teach first homepage isn't it I think how is it, how is it worded Ed, education today is not fair yeah something along those lines and I think that's I think that's a really I was very um, I'm in a very fortunate position of, of actually all four of my grandparents went to university which is unusual that for is my unusual, yeah. grandmothers particularly um, and I have had a really eye-opening experience um, uh, kind of during and after university when I when I really became aware of that having been you know naive and ignorant um, and yeah it's not fair and that's really hard for those of us who've been 
Oh, sorry, it's not really hard, but it's a really big challenge for those of us who've been on the fortunate end of that, because actually we have to face up to to how fortunate we've been. And and there are schools who are getting it right. There, are, it doesn't need to be unfair, and that is also challenging because there are people working really, really hard, and that that should be acknowledged. But um, we need to we need to capture what's working well and, and share that and build that and grow that. Um, and really tackle that, that challenge, I think. So what's that one thing you're determined to change, Bridget? I'm going yeah. to push you on this one. It can be personal, professional, or... For me, it's very... Uh, you obviously have a better relationship with yourself than I do, because I've got about 50 <laughs> things that I would say. Determined to change. so many things that are ever changing one thing that I'm determined to change in five years time yeah I think it would I think do you know if you had asked me this six months ago mid writing the book it would be stop taking on too many things at once just get one thing really right um, I think there's a bit of, a bit of that um, will you write again do you think Oh, see now it's out. I'm, you know, as I say, six months ago I would have said definitely not. Um, I hope I do write again, not, not this week, not <laughs> maybe not this next next year. But um, yeah, but I think there is something for me about being really in both personal and professional, just being really. Cutting, not tweaking on everything, just being really clear on what are the really important things, and focusing on those and getting those those right. Um, and yeah, I think there's, I think I have a tendency to, you know, when you're looking at your, to have a million tabs open at once in my life. I think, and I think I could do it with a little bit more. Uh, uh, That's a nice metaphor. But yeah, I've never. I've never <laughs> One's life is like, yeah, how many tabs you can have open, never closing things up. Yeah. Completion's challenging as well, isn't it? Are you a good completer? Do you tend to get to the end of things well? I, so someone said, I mean, can't, I don't know who said it first, I'm sure it said lots, someone said, when Dave and I were writing, you never finish a book, you just abandon it. And I think I have learned and could do a lot better at going, okay, at some point you have to stop at good enough. Don't let perfect get in the way of of being good enough um, so I complete things and I get them done I'm not very satisfied <laughs> completer um, yeah. it's really interesting how you look at that one isn't it because I, I, I don't want to come across as some experienced business type because I'm certainly not that but I've become exposed in the last three or four years to the world of business and a business person would say to you that's MVP minimal viable product that's mm. all you should ever put out at any moment, the minimal viable product is the one that should be available, and then you build on the next one. Yeah. I, I guess that's where versioning and iteration comes in, and there's something really powerful about that because until you get the first, or until you abandon the first time, yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't actually get the feedback for the the future iteration. And I think there's, I think there's something very powerful. I think there's many of us who are. 
afflicted by that need yeah. to feel that that was perfect and, the, and, and exactly how I imagined and dreamed it would be. And especially for especially schools education, your children are really important. You're Absolutely. dealing with children's lives, so you want it to be the best that it can be. I think it ties into the, to the workload challenge that I think many teachers have at the moment is actually... It's really urgent and important. You want to invest everything in it. Mm. But ultimately, as you say, you're not able to evaluate it and improve it and make it better still um, if you never have, if you never finish it or if you never have the space to kind of put it out there and adapt. And it doesn't need to be, yeah, don't let perfect get in the way of, of good, I think. Yeah. Interesting. Don't let perfect get in the way of good. Is that your line? Oh no, I'm not sure where so it comes from. I'm going to use from, it, but, but I say it to myself a lot. <laughs> I've heard someone say something. I'm, I'm trying, I've heard someone say to me recently something very, very close to that. But I think it's really nice. I think it's really useful. Don't let perfect get in the way of good. Hmm. I'm not going to open the conversation about lesson observations at this point. <laughs> we, should, yeah. we should avoid that one at this point. But Bridget, I want to. I want to wrap up. There. I want to say a massive thank you to you. I want to acknowledge something which for me personally is very important. I, I think I mentioned it to, I, was it in the recording or possibly before, is that I'm a very fortunate man that I get to sit with people such as yourself, such as David previously, and many other people, and I get to listen to your ideas. And it's somewhat selfish on my part in truth because really for, for me I'm trying to absorb this thinking and this mentality, this approach, this technical knowledge, this understanding, this insight mm -hmm. and I, I really do thank you for sharing it and I'm sure for the listeners as well um, who, who are going to be exposed to this I think it's going to be a really really resourceful experience for people and uh, I'd also like to add that um, I cannot endorse highly enough Unleashing Great Teaching as a book and I, this is not a there's no commercial relationship here it's something I've read and have valued and I think as I said to you guys on Twitter recently that I've learned from um, and that's a very high compliment I think and also mtptproject.org.uk and Teach First website is teachfirst.com I might have that wrong I think it's org but it's a .org teachfirst.org have a look and um, there's some great stuff in there so. yeah. thank you so much for having me and that's yeah I'm so pleased to, to hear that. Um.